Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he's icing and slicing, it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. I, I'm Kay. That tagline, is it uh, that vanilla ice film from the early 90s that I can't remember? Cool as ice? Is it cool as ice? Unfortunately not. It is actually uh, something uh, a lot more classy than that. It's uh, Jack Frost 2, The Revenge of the Mutant Killer Snowman. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, uh, Jack Frost won, starred Michael Keaton, did it, before he won his Oscar? Uh, you sure it wasn't after? It yeah, wasn't well... Kate Pay- <laughs> well, he hasn't won an Oscar, but uh, it was certainly, yeah, some time before he was nominated. Oh, he didn't win an Oscar? No, he, he should have won for Birdman, but he didn't. Oh, who won? <sighs> oh, was it Eddie Redmayne? I think it was Eddie Redmayne. Ooh, fucking Eddie fucking Redmayne. But yeah, they're, they're, I don't know, there are probably a lot more films in the Jack Frost... Uh, Revenge of the Mutant Killer Snowman franchise, but two had the best tagline. Yeah, I always thought it was great that there were two Jack Frost films. There was obviously the cuddly, family-friendly one, which was the Mike, the Michael Keaton film, and then there was the Killer Snowman one. And I always used to like the idea of someone mixing them up at the video store and pick, taking the wrong one home for the kids. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. So are you saying that this film... Jack Frost 2, Revenge of the Mutant, Killer Snowman, isn't a U-turn kind of like spin-off from the first one, which was the kind of the Michael Keaton one, where it's a dead man, a dead father comes back as a snowman and reconnects with his son. This is not a sequel to that film. Not as far as I'm aware. Also, I don't think it's a U-turn film because I don't think it's directed by Oliver Stone. But it's right, okay. <laughs> a very obscure Oliver Stone reference for people who like his kind of weird mid-90s work. Um, mm. But no, I believe they're separate series, but I would like to think they're the same. Yeah, I think it's very confusing calling your film the same the same title. Yeah, it's like um, the two crashes. I'd like to think mm. that someone rented the Cronenberg one and thought, "Oh, this is the one that won Best Picture," and being very disturbed by it. Mm. Or mashing the two up, like you know, there's a really heavy-handed kind of comment on race, and in the background, there's like you know, James Spader jerking off. <laughs> Crashing a car and wanking. Mm, the old crash wank. Um, that's what they should have called that film to avoid confusion. Crash wank. Um, news this week. The Warcraft, that film made by uh, Duncan Jones, which I have no desire to see whatsoever because it kind of looks crap. But it uh, seems to have got mixed reviews and is looks like it's going to falter in the United States. But it doesn't seem to matter because it is tearing up the Chinese box office. Yeah, it's earned close to two hundred million so far there, and ha- over this course this weekend earned more in five days than Star Wars: The Force Awakens earned in its entire run there. Um, mm. I mean, Force Awakens wasn't kind of as big as say the last tra- uh, Transformers film or Fast uh, Furious Seven, which were both really huge hits there. But it, or Zootopia, which has also been a really big success there. But it's certainly impressive to see a film that. Uh, has pretty much already been written off in the US after just three days being massive in China. And also uh, something that I didn't realise, apparently most of the current users of World of Warcraft are based in China, which I think may be why the success of it has been more notable there than over here. Mm. 
Speaking of kind of Zootopia or Zootropolis, depending if you're in Denmark or not, I read something this week about that being the kind of the second highest earning original film of all time. Yeah, that is correct. It's I think it's the highest original um, Disney property as well because a lot of their stuff like Frozen obviously made more money, but is technically based on a fairy tale. But yeah, right. after uh, after Avatar, it's the most successful original property ever because everything else is either based on a book or a sequel to something that's based on a book or based on a real event site like Titanic. But yeah, it's it's been a staggering success that I don't think many people saw coming. Hmm. Yeah. Or it probably just illustrates how many films are based on pre-existing properties. That um, Yeah. And, I mean, Avatar being original, that's very kind of... <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, there's uh, kind of all this hoo-ha about an all-female Ghostbusters is kind of been happening, uh, mainly with idiots. But there's uh, another all-female uh, reboot on the horizon, and they're going to ruin... Can you ruin people's childhoods who liked Ocean's Eleven? The remake? remake? Well, all the like 13-year-olds who went to watch a kind of very talky, cerebral heist movie starring uh, movie stars their parents like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's being remade uh, with an all-female cast, which ordinarily would be tiresome news, but that cast looks quite good, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I haven't got the list in front of me. Who are the names that have been applied to it so far? I'm going to say Elizabeth Banks. Yep, she's usually attached Uh, to these sort of things. Mindy Kaling. Yep, that's a good one. Pretty sure Kate Blanchett. Yeah, I'm sure Jennifer Lawrence will be in the mix somewhere. Yeah, I'd hope so. But yeah, that's that's a pretty solid kind of four to start with. I mean, they need kind of two older ones. Like, if they're going to follow the formula. And then the other ones that they forget. And uh, someone to do a really bad Cockney accent. Yeah, so I think for the older one, I'd like to see Cloris Leachman. Mm-hmm. I think she's perfect yeah. for that. Bad Cockney accents. Um, I think it would have to be Julianne Moore. Yes. Purely yes. based on, one, her Boston accent from 30 Rock, which mm-hmm. is impressively terrible. And also her French accent in Maggie's Plan, the new Rebecca Miller movie, which I haven't seen, but I have seen the accent. Uh, I have seen the accent. I've seen the adverts and her accent in the adverts is the sort of thing you watch. And you think, I bet someone made a bet with her that she would be able to just do a whole film with this accent and no one would tell her no because you just won an Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I can't really think of anyone else who does kind of terrible accents outside of yeah, the usual suspects. But I think I'd like to see someone like Emma Stone mm. who is no- known for being able to play Chinese <laughs> uh, so she could probably do Cockney at a pinch and uh, make it uh, equally as unconvincing yeah yeah I think it's it's potentially very very exciting because it is nice to see a franchise which people maybe aren't that emotionally attached to being given the all-women treatment just because it will provoke less hatred um, mm-hmm. but also like you say it's got a great people attached to it so far i think any film that provides like an opportunity for 11 really great actresses to show what they can do would be just like uh, a tremendously huge and exciting opportunity hmm. in the interest of balance and fairness ed because men do get the rough end of the deal most of the time in the equality stakes mm-hmm. um are there any all female movies that could given be given the all male that kind of remake treatment, just to make it fair. I'm thinking something like an all-male Steel Magnolias. Uh, I I would like to see an all-male version of The Women. <laughs> yeah, or an all-male an all uh, uh, remake of The Craft. 
Didn't they do that a few years ago? There was one that was basically an all-male version of the craft, which was just about kind of sexy wizards, and it was very much kind of kind of terrible. I assume very terrible and forgotten to the such extent I can't actually remember what the title is. Until I see evidence, Ed, I'm just going to assume this was a kind of crazy fever dream that you've had, or you were using marker pens in an enclosed space without an open window. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to Google film about sexy, sexy wizards. Well, actually, no, maybe in Warlocks. So let's see what it tells me. <laughs> Sexy Warlocks. This is going to ruin your Google search history, Ed. Or, you know, it'll probably pop up as a previous search. Mm. So far, it's not giving me very much. Julian Sands came up. So I'm not sure why. No, could be anything. Well, Julian Sands directed the film Warlock. Oh, did he? Is that right? I think so. <laughs> maybe. Or he's in the film Warlock. It's very with, possible. Uh, Richard, Richard yeah. E. Grant's in that. Yeah, a film called Warlock, uh, Warlock 3, The End of Innocence is showing up. Sexy Cartoon Witches, that's not it. Mm. Although I think I've been to that website. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Um, but yeah, this is a new low, listeners. <laughs> Ed Googles Sexy Warlocks live on air. Uh, we'll move on, and then that'll bug Ed for the rest of the show. And at it, the end, it is going to really he, he will come up with the way it is. And whatever it is, in the, in the kind of style of the All Saints movie, we're going to have to watch it. And then, and then report back. Um, other news this week, Ed, uh, and kind of very unpleasant news. It seems that Kevin Smith has uh, had a long gestating desire to bring a sequel to More Rats. Um, and even when I liked Kevin Smith films when I was like 17, I thought that even More Rats was pretty puerile. He's uh, failed to get it going as a film sequel, but now he's going to do a 10-part TV show because reasons, I guess? Yeah, he... For a long time, as you say, he's been trying to get a sequel made. I think last year he talked it up quite a lot, talking about doing one about like a younger generation or something. And apparently no one's biting because no one cares about more rats. Um, mm. I mean, I always quite enjoyed it, but I also haven't seen it in about 15 years, so I don't know if it holds up. But uh, even then, it wasn't one that I kind of enjoyed returning to very often. Like you say, it's very puerile uh, and very, very silly but in a kind mm. of enjoyable, kind of uh, good-natured sort of way. Uh, mm. in, yeah. in, in so much as tricking someone to eat a chocolate-covered pretzel covered in shit is good-natured. Um, mm. Especially if it's Michael Rooker. Yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten it was him. I know. <laughs> I was just I think, who plays that guy? But yeah, um, Henry Portrait of Serial Killer probably does deserve to eat shit a little bit. Um, mm. Yeah. But yeah, so he, he said that after working on an episode of The Flash early this year where he came in and directed an episode, he realised that television was the only place where he could tell the the uh, story of the sequel to a film that no one really remembers that well. Um, yeah. I, I mean, he's not 100% wrong because obviously Wet Hot American Summer did it, but uh, I don't know if there's... Unless he's going to have some wonderfully absurd idea for it in the same way that that did of doing a prequel set early of the same summer starring actors who are 10 or 10 or 15 years older uh, and heightening the absurdity of the whole thing. Unless he can come up with a spin like that, it does kind of just seem like, um, to an extent, masturbatory. I mean, I'd, I would never ever want to accuse Kevin Smith of being masturbatory in any way, but we've heard this sort of thing from him before when he was talking about making that hockey movie and he said, oh, uh, called hit somebody or or something i think that was what it was yeah. called where mm -hmm. he was going to make it as a film and then he was like oh no it's going to be two films then it was going to be a mini series and that didn't happen and the same thing with the third clerks film which is 
in limbo somewhere so it does seem like it's more just a case that he likes to talk to people about things than necessarily because it's a thing that will happen mm. i think it's, it, it all spins off that film he made about the walrus uh yeah. he basically talks about it idly on his podcast and then someone took him up on the offer so i think maybe if he just talks about enough things you know maybe it'll happen maybe it'll, next week it'll be i want to do you know, a kind of 26-part adaptation of Chasing Amy with sock puppets and someone will be like, yeah, I'll we'll watch that. And, you know, it'll happen. And until he's stopped, uh, it'll keep going on. Yeah, pretty much. It does feel as if he has reached the stage in his career where he just enjoys... Podcasting has essentially ruined him as a filmmaker. It just made, has made him someone who enjoys just talking shit as opposed to actually sitting down in front of a typewriter and, well, you know, he's pro- he's probably has a he probably types it out on his ipad if he writes anything at all but you know mm. actually sitting down and doing the graft yeah yeah yeah. get back on the old typewriter uh as ed says i'm kind of picturing him as kind of like a hemingway type kind of just but that's not how he operates at all i'd imagine and he wrote a film about a man who turns into a walrus the film so, i was yeah. thinking of by the way was the covenant starring amongst others Taylor Kitsch and Sebastian Stan. Holy fuck. That kind of like lank haired, uh, kind of moody teen perfected by Sebastian Stan and Taylor Kitsch. That is not a real thing, is it? No, it's a real thing. Oh, Definitely God. directed by Rennie Harlan, so you know it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I can't believe we did that thing last week on like like movies and disastrous productions and didn't get to mention Rennie Harlan once. Yeah. The man behind such classics as Cutthroat Island. Yeah, yeah, he has got several black... His name is his, his name is one big black mark. <laughs> um, um, in kind of more pleasant TV news, uh, moving on from the whole Mall Rats debacle, there is a rumour, the word on the street coming from the mouth of uh, Mr. J.B. Smoove, is that Larry David is considering a return to Curb. Now, normally we wouldn't uh, comment on such idle speculation, which is man says other man might do something but that's that's all we've got to go on and that's very exciting yeah obviously Kirby enthusiasm has been off the air for five years at this point but because Larry David has the sweetest deal in the world of HBO which is they basically say we'll make the show whenever you want to do it it means that he can basically put up pick it up whenever he's wanted to and over the last couple of years he's had other projects he made a film for HBO he may he obviously did a, a play last year so he's had a lot of opportunity to do other things and you know it'd be nice it'd be cool if he got the itch to do it again because the last season was really great and it's a show that never really had a dip in quality and the the idea of him coming back and also of wanting JB Smooth to be in it still is great because uh, as Leon he was one of the funniest things on that show to the extent as I was saying to you before that I mentally assumed that he was in like half the show because he's such a big presence and he's so funny but when you actually look at his credits on imdb he's only in like 16 episodes Hmm. and just to remind myself did the last episode the last season end up with them in paris it did yes they he left new york and went to paris and i think in the last scene was basically him arguing someone over a parking space Yes, didn't he, didn't they move to Paris to basically avoid some kind of social awkward, socially awkward situation that would have been easy to do with like a phone call or an apology, but ended up moving to Paris? Yeah, much for pretty much the same reason that he ended up moving to New York. He was constantly displacing himself to take him away from 
uh, easily resolved situations because that's just what Larry David, the fictional version, does. Um, Although we don't know if that play he did in New York was spurred on by him having an argument with Ted Danson or something in real life and deciding he needed to uh, move to the East Coast for a little while. Mm. Um, What was the central hook of the uh, last season of Curb? Because I know you said that like it hasn't had a dip in quality and I'm a big fan of the show, but I kind of really didn't enjoy the Michael J. Fox episodes. Was that last season? That was last season, yeah. The the main thing was he was in New York and he was having kind of arguments with Michael J. Fox all the time and kind of had a, a feud with him. Mm, so the Seinfeld season was the one before that, right? Yeah, which probably would have been... If he were to end the show on anything, that probably would have been the, the thing to go out on because that was a great season that ended brilliantly. Mm, and it was a, the single greatest curb last episode payoff um, since the restaurant opened in season three. Mm. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think that like Curb is a show that is awesome because he has that deal that he can just do whatever he wants, which means that he's not going to try and wheedle half an idea into a full series. You know that when he comes back with something, because he does get the itch occasionally and needs to scratch it. I mean, he didn't have to do Curb Enthusiasm in the first place. He was He's a multi, multi, multi-millionaire who can just hang around and play golf all day. So you do know that when it does come back, it is going to be worth seeing. Yeah, and it would at least finally put the end to the speculation because the the worst thing about the the kind of the years between seasons is just that sense of, you know, every time Jeff Garland goes on a TV show or a podcast or something, people are asking him and he's like, you know, Larry talks about it all the time or Larry hasn't mentioned anything. It's just kind of like if it actually goes into production, you can finally just say, oh, finally, they're doing it. Also, I do kind of feel as if uh, actually announcing the show's coming back would be out of step with the media landscape of 2016. I would much rather he secretly filmed it all <laughs> and then just kind of announced on uh, like Twitter, oh, by the way, all 10 episodes of season nine are available <laughs> on HBO Go or something. Mm, yeah, imagine if JB Smooth's interview, him talking about Larry Davis thinking about doing something, is part of the show that's already been filmed. <laughs> And the whole thing is about him having to listen to Jeff Garlin and everyone else saying, oh, yeah, Larry's got an idea for a new one. And the entire 10 episodes is him not having an idea and trying to kind of come by something together. Okay, Ed, what are we talking about in this, the bulk of the show? Because we did movie disasters last week. What are we doing this week? We're doing disaster movies as a fun little play on words. Mm, yeah, I mean, as a play on words, it's it's relatively kind of straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's just swapping the words around but i mean what do we mean by disaster movies well uh, i think people when they think of disaster movies they have a very clear idea and a very clear period which is the 1970s roughly from 1970 with the release of airport which was a huge success and was very much focused on the idea of just kind of a disaster involving a plane and then going through things like the towering inferno the poseidon adventure earthquake and then through to 1980 when you get airplane where essentially the in- the entire idea of a disaster movie had become so cliched and so oversaturated that you could do a incredibly funny and kind of pitch perfect satire of the whole thing which actually also completely killed the genre off mm. but outside of that period it's a kind of a genre that has existed throughout like the last hundred years and occasionally uh reappears in in kind of uh, sort of revivals of it like there was a kind of a mini revival in the 90s but also 
kind of informs a lot of the blockbusters these days. So even though the term disaster movie is very much associated with a certain period, it's something whose kind of legacy both precedes and extends beyond that period. Yeah, the uh, even though we kind of did base this all around on a play on words, as I said, we actually the impetus for this episode was a article on the Roger Ebert website, rogerebert.com, by uh, Alexander Halls, who describes the kind of the worst thing that he says happened to him. He was kind of seven years old, I think it says, and he was in Mexico on holiday with his family, and a kind of huge earthquake kind of uh, turned his entire world on its head um, and an earthquake that ended up killing tens of thousands of people and he talks about the fact that this has never really bothered him in his career as a film critic until Man of Steel came out and essentially uh, caused him to relive that trauma all over again and that article is very interesting because it posits the idea that uh, there is kind of a, a near pornographic approach to uh, destruction on a kind of city and global scale in kind of maybe superhero movies specifically, but also kind of blockbuster movies now. And there's no real consideration given to the fact that people across the world relive and live these horrors kind of every day. Yeah, I mean, the the one of the ones that I always think of is, even though it's uh, not particularly good film and people, I think most people don't remember it, would be Battleship. Mm-hmm. which is a film that in the trailers featured scenes of an attack on a major city and like a building being hit and then crumbling. And it was not the first film to kind of evoke the images of 9-11, but it was one of the ones that did it in the kind of the most starkest and kind of uh, crass, most crass way to the extent that it was an image in the trailer. And mm-hmm. it it kind of, for me represented kind of one of the the kind of the next lows of kind of exploiting that imagery for blockbuster entertainment but then you know you get to man of steel and that was a film that really took it to very for me very kind of disquieting depths Mm. and it's interesting to see that like kind of post i mean if we talk about 90s disaster movies the the poster boy uh, is probably independence day a film in which uh the the trailer and poster and one of the big set pieces is the, an alien spaceship destroying the White House. And the Chrysler building, I think, uh, buys it as well in that. And I think a few years later, we had Godzilla, where we had other landmarks destroyed. And it kind of became a thing, kind of seeing these landmarks destroyed uh, in a kind of cinematic, entertaining way. And there was a whole kind of thing in American cinemas when the White House was destroyed. There were cheers and there were boos and there was all kinds of kind of weird feeling about it. But it was just a movie. But then September the 11th happened and we can see big famous landmarks destroyed for real. And that is an incredibly kind of, like you say, disquieting thing to experience. That The things that you see in a movie that you would only ever see in a disaster movie, you would only ever see uh, unfolding on a cinema screen was happening live on TV. And the kind of the scale of suffering was kind of unimaginable. Which surprises me that we see it kind of batted around so casually now. So for, for a kind of example, The Avengers, which was made what, 10 years, 11 years after 9-11, shows the wholesale destruction of downtown New York. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting because for a while there was kind of a moratorium on that kind of 
widespread destruction of realistic places of real places mm-hmm. but realistic destruction of real places which like you say kind of had a resurgence in the 90s of roland emmerich was at the forefront of that because mm. obviously he did what's, what's he hiding <laughs> he, but he was like he obviously did independence day he also did godzilla um and then after 9-11 he also did the day the, uh, the day after tomorrow Mm. which also featured the destruction of New York, but did it in this fantastical way where the entire place froze and it was kind of hit by a wave, which is less fantastical, uh, kind of in a post-Hurricane uh, Sandy New York, because mm-hmm. that kind of happened to an extent. But it was uh, in the time, in, at two, in uh, 2004, like the idea of a whole wave just kind of levelling, kind of covering all of downtown Manhattan and Jake Gyllenhaal having to outrun free, uh, the cold at one point. You know, that was kind of taking that level of mass destruction and kind of placing it in the realm of fantasy um, to the extent, obviously, South Park could mock it very, very well in an episode. Um, mm. But yeah, it it did seem for a while there that if you wanted to see that level of destruction, it would have to be something like in the Lord of the Rings films, which is a series we talk about, you know, re- relatively often. But that would feature kind of fairly large destruction. But obviously it was all involving kind of fantasy creatures, so it didn't matter so much. Mm. I mean, we kind of talked about this before we went on, but we're saying that if you watch the the special features of the Lord of the Rings films, they talk about going to great lengths to make sure that um, the destruction of the Tower of Baradur did not in any way look like the the kind of the twin towers coming down. And that was you know, a year or two years after nine eleven. But it just seemed like there was this this point at which all of a sudden people were fine with it. And then it was just open season. Yeah, the the film that I I kind of always gravitate to because it was the first one where I could remember lots of people all at once saying that it was a film that deliberately evoked nine eleven imagery was Cloverfield, mm-hmm. which again had a kind of widespread destruction, buildings falling down in New York, and obviously it operated on a metaphorical level because it was a film to an extent about new york about the, the terror of 9-11 and you know the fact that people recorded it on their own handheld uh, on the handheld cameras obviously uh weird to think that people would have to have real cameras to do that because it wouldn't be like that now <laughs> it would just be yeah. every we'd have literally millions of video files of it on people's phones if it happened now but it was very much a case where that was a film that deliberately evoked the aesthetic and the images of 9-11 uh, as a kind of an act of catharsis, but also as an act of entertainment in much the same way that Godzilla, which is a kind of a proto-disaster movie, uh, did with uh, Japanese fears about uh, atomic energy and the nuclear bomb in the 1950s. Mm. It's, I think it's odd that, like, what what kind of baffles me about it is that when something like Cloverfield came out and people were like, oh, okay, this is evoking 9-11 and... You know, those memories are still very uncomfortable. All of a sudden, it's not like we talk about those films in isolation as if, you know, this, if he is past, this film came out, it made people feel uncomfortable, but, you know, it was kind of part of the process. But then just all of a sudden, it's just this massive burst of cities being destroyed. Like, and I mean, even the, the Avengers, the third film, it kind of, the whole film is based around destroying an entire kind of like small nation in one go is is perhaps a step too far and it almost felt like a comment on you know what was going on in that kind of disaster movies because this is post man of steel which a film is is 
it's kind of reprehensible, really, in the way that it treats the destruction of a fictional city. Yeah, I think one of the the key differences between the current trend of uh, what you know what people call disaster porn, which is essentially blockbusters that use widespread destruction to kind of up the stakes, but are not really about that destruction. Mm. And disaster movies from the seventies, kind of what people look at the the kind of the pinnacles of the genre, like The Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure, is that they are in a sense the earlier films were kind of humanistic. They were they were about the people who were caught up in the disaster. The disaster provided the spectacle and was the incited incident, and in a lot of cases was also the location for the film because you would have all of these big name stars and these huge ensemble casts, often including Burt Lancaster would be kind of trapped in a single location and they would have to try and get out and some of them would turn against each other, some of them would work together and it was very much about the human experience of being in an extreme situation. Whereas Man of Steel and the Avengers and all these other superhero movies, it's very the the there is no focus really on the people caught up in these horrible situations. It is about the people who are responsible for them. Um, although to differentiate between Man of Steel and the Marvel stuff for a second, there has been in the last couple of years since Man of Steel an effort to kind of have people point out, okay, we need to get the, we need to help survivors or we've abandoned, we, you know, we're fighting in an abandoned location, which also I think is a plot point in Batman v Superman that they, they basically say in dialogue that the big fight fight takes place in like an abandoned industrial district and stuff. But it is that always feels a little bit like just kind of lip service to kind of like saying yeah we're going to have all of this kind of awesome looking destruction of buildings but you don't have to trouble yourself with the possibility that millions of people are dying um which there wasn't really any expressed in either uh the avengers or man of steel mm, yeah. yeah i'm just baffled as to why you know post 9-11 kind of audiences seem to be craving uh, this this destruction on a wide scale. I thought it would be the, the kind of the last thing that people wanted to see, but you know, hey ho. Do you think that the the kind of nineties kind of little cycle of disaster films, which all seem to be based around either real incidents or kind of natural disasters, um, what do you think that was about? Global warming. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I think it probably was a little bit. That was when environmental concerns started to really percolate up obviously environmentalism had been around for a long time but the 90s was when people started to the idea of global warming and climate change as it was later renamed started to really take root so certainly that was you know growing up it was something that i was very much aware of as a kid but i also wonder if it's to an extent about like the end of the cold war meaning that you no longer had the threat of nuclear armageddon armageddon as the kind of root cause of fear in movies because hmm. i yeah, yeah if you don't have that and you know you don't have terrorism which uh or at least uh you don't have non kind of uh loners tenor- terrorism which was kind of a a trend of in the 90s as well films about lone terrorists going kind of mad in things even in things like 12 monkeys which is essentially about that you do have to try and find a new threat and the kind of the the one that people seem to gravitate to was like you say kind of environmental concerns or the uh essentially the world the earth betraying us Mm, yeah yeah so we're talking things like uh twister obviously Mm -hmm. dante's peak uh volcano i think was another one um wasn't there one with uh, hard rain (laughs) i'm pretty sure that was just (laughs) 
a backdrop for, to a terrible crime movie. But, you know, into, it was inclement weather. It wasn't, you know, it weren't pleasant. There was one uh, British gangster movie called Drizzle. Uh, set in, there wasn't, uh, but it would have been set in Bolton, which is the rainiest place in the UK, fact fans. But yeah, it's, it seems uh, like there was a, a kind of a, a raft of those. And then, like I say, with the day after tomorrow, that was probably when people were like, yeah, we don't need to do this anymore. Yeah, I think that that one, uh, and it's kind of pseudo-sequel 2012, which was a little more nebulous and was just kind of like, the world's ending for some reason and the crust of the earth is just breaking open and, and everything. They were very much kind of more concerned with just the spect again, just the spectacle of destruction as opposed to the human cost of it. Um, mm. And also I think what's interesting about all of those disaster movies in comparison to say like the Poseidon adventure or, or towering inferno is like, it's not really, it's not, it's kind of not an event that people could have, could have stopped. Like when the tower inferno things could have been taken to have prevented the fire occurring that traps everyone, the Poseidon adventure, they could have not gone out in bad weather you know, things like that. It was very much a case of shit is just happening and there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. In the same way you see that kind of uh, in, in the wake of things like Independence Day, um, you see films like Deep Impact and Armageddon, which mm. are about, again, things you, you can't avoid unless you send up Bruce Willis to stick a big explosive on it. Yeah, or, yeah, basically it it moves into a realm where, and this is kind of a, I guess is all kind of part of a general trend away from away from the humanity of these stories they're less you know you take away the idea that these events are man-made and they're just kind of things that happen and eventually you just take the humans out of it entirely mm, yeah, yeah last few years as well we've seen um the impossible which tackles the uh the boxing day tsunami and uh, the indian ocean we saw uh san andreas which i imagine um doesn't probably tackle it quite so sensitively. Uh, I can only imagine that The Rock uh, drops the people's elbow on an earthquake and beats it. <laughs> yeah, he just waits and he kind of just gets ahead of it and then mm. just the right moment just kind of smacks it. Much much in the same way that uh, in the movie Tremors they defeat the creatures by getting them to crash into concrete walls. Yeah, yeah, there's only one way to stop an earthquake uh, and that's Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> um, but, I mean, do you think that, I mean, the... the what we're trying to say is, will, will there always be an appetite for disaster movies and, and what drives it? Uh, I think in a lot of cases, it is just that because there's something exciting about seeing people put in extreme situations. There's also something about seeing these kind of crazy things realised on a huge scale. And I feel like the advances in digital technology are probably responsible for a large part why we... Uh, have such destruction on screen now because you couldn't really do it before. Like mm. you could destroy a whole city in films before the kind of the advent of computer technology, but the way you would do it is you would lose use models, and it would always look a tiny bit fake. Like in you know the original Richard Donner Superman, where all that that earthquake is set off at the end, and all this these buildings start crumbling down and a dam breaks and water goes and you're watching it you're thinking that's like that's clearly like one twenty of size uh it's still like really nicely put together a shot but you can tell it's not really real or to go back to like the godzilla thing you know it is a guy in a suit stomping through a a makeshift um city so 
the advances in technology allow that to happen and once people have the ability to create these kind of crazy images that's when you start to pe see people kind of really going to town on on making them uh making them happen on screen mm. interesting that what it says about humans uh, as a species that like when given limitless like creativity through a tool like CGI all we choose to do is show scenes of destruction and death yeah i think it's it's a, it's a weird kind of escapism i think it's the fact that people are want to experience trauma in kind of a safe zone mm -hmm. and that's kind of what these things allow people to do you get to see the absolute worst things happen uh and then occur in a way that doesn't provide any sort of threat to them and that is that allows them to kind of work through this and that is provides the catharsis and i think that might be why in the immediate years after 9-11 you didn't see so much of that imagery and you get stuff like you know like the spider-man films where which take place in new york and are very explicitly about spider-man and trying to help as many people as possible on an individual level and prevent widespread destruction uh is mm. very much a, a, a kind of a hopeful series about that as opposed to later superhero movies which do have a lot of destruction occurring kind of willy-nilly with characters just destroying stuff in their fights and things like that and i do feel like it was too raw for a while for people to uh, get any kind of catharsis from from widespread destruction so people kind of held back on that sort of thing but I think the success of Cloverfield just kind of made people think, or made filmmakers and studios think that people were okay with it. Um, mm. Whether or not people actually were is maybe a different thing. Maybe people are just still were still at a certain point just so shocked and numbed to the images of nine eleven from seeing it repeated so much on the news and then in um, like tributes and just the fact that it's it defined so much of of American life certainly, but also just like of the the kind of course of world's events for the pet part of a decade and still does now that you know you've seen real life buildings be destroyed and crumble and thousands of lives die uh at you know at a certain point the idea of seeing that hap that stuff happen to kind of fictional people uh no longer kind of shocks anymore mm. I think that's uh, pretty much disaster movies and movie disasters last week uh, all covered off. So let's get into recommends. What have you got this week, Ed? Well, after we talked about kind of disastrous movies last week, uh, I decided to catch up on one that I'd kind of been thinking about and wanting to see for a while, but I just never made the time to see, which is Leos Carax's The Lovers on the Bridge, which is a film that... Uh, if you hear the premise, sounds like it would be a very low, like a very intimate and and small budget drama, which is basically two homeless people fall in love on the streets of Paris, and you think, oh, that shouldn't be kind of too expensive. But uh, this was a film that for a long time was the most expensive French film ever made, um, and you kind of wonder how could that happen. And then when you look at the details, it's like, oh, they wanted to film on the real Pont de Neuf in Paris, and they couldn't because the lead actor Denis Levant kind of hurt his hand and they couldn't film so they had to build an an exact scale model of it in a different town and they had to delay because they ran out of money and it basically was just this like rolling series of disasters and the film took more than two years to make even though the story is this like i say very intimate romance about two people falling in love uh and 
the backstory behind the film is really fascinating but what's really great about it is it's just an amazing work of cinema and leos carrick's for people who who may not be familiar with his work he directed a couple of films in the 80s one called boy meets girl one called Mauve uh, sang and uh, my french is not very good um but that, that one's kind of uh, a great movie and then he directed a few years ago from called holy motors which is a film that was you know widely loved a few years ago it is a kind of wonderful mad bit of genius and this is much more normal than that film that film is quite surreal this one is, is very much a straightforward drama about Demis Levant and Juliette Binoche kind of falling in love but what's really great about it is it demonstrates just how much a simple story is enlivened by by basically technique you know uh, Leos Carax is someone who is very good at capturing bodies in motion there's a famous scene in, in Mauvais Sang where Dennis Levant is kind of overcome by feelings of love and he just runs down the street to modern love by David Bowie, which is kind of a wonderful shot of just as someone just being, having just so much energy that they don't know what to do and just expressing it through motion. And that's kind of what the whole film is. He uses the camera to capture just the kind of the, the beauty and the, the love, love of being alive, essentially. And he does it in a way which is almost kind of spiritual and transcendent. And that is something that he does over and over in Lovers on the Bridge. And it's it's a wonderful movie that i think everyone should see i think it's one of the best movies of the 90s and i feel like the fact that it was such a disaster and completely derailed leos character's career to the extent that he's only made two and a half films since 1991 uh means that it doesn't get talked about enough as it should hmm mm. and it's on movie isn't it so it was on movie i think it's pretty widely available other places it was certainly i think it, it may be on various netflixes if you search around yeah yeah cool man uh i'm gonna uh recommend a book uh this week i'm gonna recommend uh the book bloodline by claudia gray it is uh something that probably a few years ago i would have turned my nose up i'm probably ashamed to say it is a star wars book and uh, kind of probably since the disney merger with lucasfilm um they've decided to bring everything under one roof and make sure all the stories are connected and they've kind of got rid of the old canon as it were and start a new one and um i can report from my dipping my toe in the waters of this new canon and this uh, new star wars future that it's pretty good man like the this is a book about princess leia and what happens six years before the force awakens and it's a full of political intrigue and uh we kind of find out how the baddies in the new film came to be um and it's quite heavy-handed in places uh in the sense that it'll be like oh, Leia hadn't felt this way since she was in that asteroid worm. And it was, it's pretty kind of like uh, on the nose with how it kind of makes you recall the previous films. But it's it's pretty good, man. I'd recommend it. It's uh, got lots of good characters in it. Uh, the character of Leia, it's nice to see her as the main character. And uh, she does a lot of kind of kicking ass and taking names. And it's very progressive, as you'd expect the new kind of Star Wars uh, kind of stuff to be. There's... Uh, lots of women in it. I mean, imagine that. Um, there's like a gay character in it. I mean, it's outrageous, Ed. It's 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 kind of it's all happening, um, and it's all Star Wars, and it's it's a very enjoyable read. It's it's, a, it's I think it's supposed to be a book for grown-ups, but I'd say it's probably pitched a bit more a kind of young adult. But I very much enjoyed it, and I recommend it to all. Cool. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I think I will check that. Out. I haven't read any Star Wars novels in quite a long time not since my uh expanded universe obsessed teen years which mm, yeah. uh, were as i've said before 
were great kind of primer for Phantom Menace because they taught me that Star Wars could be terrible. Um, <laughs> uh, as a lot of a lot of those books are not very good or well written, so the uh, that was one of the things why I was very excited and didn't you know didn't pay for a billboard to be taken out complaining about the wiping clean of the slate because. Uh, I think there are a lot of really great and interesting stories to tell in the Star Wars universe, and people very rarely did that under the old system. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, checking that out at some point. Mm, let's not go down the uh, the Bib Fortuna Spider Brain uh, cul-de-sac again, uh, yeah. because that only leads to uh, to ruin. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, that's your lot on the subject of disaster movies. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you've really enjoyed the show, why don't you leave us a little review? Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast and on Facebook, too. And also at our website, which is SRSpodcast.com. Uh, we'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.